But I'd, I'd feel that there's a season we're living in corporately as a church. And I do feel it's a season that's coming upon the Bride of Christ, the church in general. There's a greater sense of confidence coming on the church. And a greater sense of uh, boldness and confidence in our, our identity and the prophetic promises in the church. It's like people are getting fire in their eyes, believing that what Jesus says he wants to build, he really does want to build. And I wanted to look at the story of David and Goliath. Because I feel like it has, there's lots of lessons in it, but I want to focus on six lessons that the story of David and Goliath has in terms of how to navigate and walk in a new season of confidence and corporate boldness. Six lessons about actually embracing a season and walking in a season. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be grabbing particular verses out of 1 Samuel chapter 17. The first lesson is, even when there's a new season of confidence and boldness that Holy Spirit draws the church into, even when there's a new season of trusting God at a higher level or believing his prophetic promises in a deeper way, there is still a battle. And the first verse I want to draw your attention to is is in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 8. So for those of you who don't know the story, this is about a war moment between... Israel and the Philistines and instead of the two armies just going head to head in a battle the Philistines are saying no one can really beat our champion Goliath but if anybody can beat Goliath who's this massive warrior man if anybody can beat this man then you've beaten all of us and so Every day for 40 days, this massive man comes out and kind of mocks the armies of Israel. And it says in verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. And then it goes down in verse 10. This day, he says, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And it says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who's the king, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. It's interesting that the enemy's main technique for creating fear and dismay is often speaking words and threats. The main way the enemy tries to undermine or has undermined the confidence of the church is by speaking to the believer's heart. It's a technique to undermine confidence. And it says in those verses, he was mocking and defying. And it resulted in the people having fear and running away. You can see this kind of technique all the way into Genesis where the enemy comes and says, did God actually say? They're just words that cause Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God, to question their identity, 
to question their calling and to question the truth of what God has said. Did God actually say? You can read in the book of Nehemiah um, where they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and it says that, that Sambala and Tobiah, who were the enemies of the project to rebuild the wall, when they saw progress being made on the wall, they said even a fox climbing on it would break their wall down. The enemy came and brought kind of defying words that mocked the progress and mocked the work and said, you know what, what you're building can't stand the test of time and it's just going to crumble. When Jesus got baptised, it says, heaven opened and he heard the words, you are my son who I love and with you I am well pleased. And it says, Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tested by the enemy for 40 days. And one of the things the enemy said was, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, he used words to undermine Jesus's identity. And so that's one of the ways the enemy will come, even in seasons where we're saying, actually, Something's happening to the corporate church where there's fire getting in the eyes of the believer and believing God just because a church enters into a new season does not mean that there isn't still an enemy who will whisper lies and taunts and try to undermine the confidence. But it says that David in 1723, uh, David heard it. It's interesting, there's a man who's He's been anointed to become king. It's going to take quite a few years to get there. But David heard the same words that the whole of Israel were hearing. But he's a little bit like Caleb in Numbers 13. He's a man of a different spirit. So he's a man who's hearing what everybody else is hearing. But he's actually coming to a different Conclusion. The words actually causes David to ask a question. 1726, it says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God. It's, fa it's fascinating that you can have two sets of reaction to exactly the same information. Some, including the king, are dismayed and terrified. David is indignant and says, who is this guy? Who is this guy who is taunting Israel? Who is this man who defies the armies of God? And we'll find out later on that David has been through the school of the Holy Spirit and is personally fully persuaded of who God is. So the first one then is there is a battle and the battle is in the mind and the battle is around the conclusions that you come to even as you hear the very same thing as someone else. You can come to a totally 
different conclusion. Number two, the lesson is that shift and breakthrough only takes a daring minority. That shift and breakthrough only takes a daring minority. 17 in verse 17 and verse 32, David says, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. It only takes one person who's a believing believer who comes to another conclusion who says, I'll do it. I'll go. I'll fight him. I'll do something. There's power in individuals and there's power in small groups who come to another conclusion. Individuals can lift whole communities up. Small groups of people who get fire in their eyes and start believing can lift a whole community up to new and fresh impossibilities. It only takes one or two people to say, I will go, (laughs) I will fight, I'll do something. You can see that through the history of humanity. It's daring minorities who change culture. It's daring minorities in the civil rights movement in America. Somebody who says, you know what, I'm not moving on the bus. One person, one incredibly unlikely girl who says, no, I'm not moving. This is shifting. This is changing. Who does a moment of courageous obedience. Daring minorities change things. Daring minorities can change the identity of a community, can change what a community is able to do. Jesus says that yeast works its way through dough. It just changes, it it leavens the whole thing. It only takes a little thing. Jesus said a mustard seed of faith. Jesus said a small mustard seed can grow into a mighty oak that houses the birds of the air. So number two then is in a season of shift, it actually only takes a daring minority who are confident to bring breakthrough. Number three, so there's the resistance of the enemy and there's also the resistance that David experiences within his own, his own family and within his own nation. So David says, I can do it. And Saul, the king, in verse 33 of chapter 17, says, you are not able to go against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. It's interesting that Saul is one of the things who runs dismayed. And it's interesting that the king in his heart, he's lost his courage and he's lost his boldness and he's lost his commission and he's lost his sense of calling and he's lost his sense of courage. And he can only see what's naturally possible that he sees Goliath as a warrior who's been trained and he sees David a young man who hasn't got military training 
and he comes to the conclusion, you are not able. You are not able. And his family accused David. In verse uh, 28, his family says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? You've, you've abandoned your post and you're not, doing what you're, meant, not, you're not doing what you're meant to be doing. But then they go after his heart. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to fight the battle. <coughs> Who do you think you are? And we know you. You've got bad motivation. Yeah, there's a sense in the Bible talks about the accuser, which is the enemy. It says he accuses the saints 24 7, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. He's always accusing, he's always trying to steal the believer's identity. And there's something powerful here about seeing one another after the spirit, after the prophetic identity. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, fight according to the prophetic promises that you have. And there's something important as a local church, as different people, maybe unlikely people, suddenly are saying, I will go and fight, that we we don't look on and say like King Saul, you're not able to, you've only been, you're only young, or it's not possible. Do you remember the guy, the Galerines, the guy who got delivered from all those demonic? Yeah. I mean, he's in his right mind and he goes and evangelises a whole region. I mean, he's got no history or no experience and immediately he's off doing doing the stuff. So what am I saying? I'm saying that when people rise up, and they will rise up, say, well, you know what, we can take this, that we're not quick to say, no, actually, you're just young, you can't do it, and that we guard against any kind of accusatory thing about one another that might be like suspicion of one another or that you've got selfish ambition, or you're vain, or you're conceited, or you're thinking too much of yourself, but to step back and say, hey, Holy Spirit's probably on them. They're part of us rising to a new level in the community. They're part of raising us up to new possibilities. The interesting thing is, David doesn't back down or lose confidence because hey maybe King Saul is just speaking pastorally <laughs> maybe he just wants to protect David from getting killed and getting everybody into a mess but David doesn't lose heart 1736 it says or starting at 34 he talks about his job, he talks about his experience, he talks about what he has done with God. 
When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and I killed it. Your servant, so he's telling him about his history. He's telling Saul about his private history. He's telling Saul about his faithfulness in the hidden place. He's saying, Saul, don't worry, okay? Don't worry. I know I only look young, but I've killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So David is saying, look, God uses everything and wastes nothing. He's saying, look, I've got confidence and courage to say I'm going to go and fight him because in my private walk with God, in my private testimonies, in my private experience, I've seen God rescue me from the poor and he will rescue me from um, this Philistine too. This will be like one of them. It's like his private history has created in him a wellspring of courage, confidence, faith and boldness and has set him up. And that links to number five, which is if number four was God uses everything and he wastes nothing. So you might be in situations right now that you think this is absolutely unrelated to where God's promised to take me and what he's promised to do in me. God is the one who uses everything and wastes nothing. That David had learned something with the sheep that set him up for this amazing moment with Goliath. That God is teaching you sometimes and you think this is nowhere where I want to be. I'm doing a job I hate in a situation I don't want to be in. And it's actually God is doing something right now that is setting you up. Number five, there are no overnight sensations in the kingdom of God. There are no overnight successes in the kingdom of God. That secret faithfulness, what's done in the secret place when no one is looking and no one sees it and no one is clapping and there's no public is what sets you up for the public victory. It was something about David's tenacity and faithfulness with looking after the sheep that belonged, I guess, to his family and being faithful with that that set him up for the public victory. It was his courage to look after the resources that he was asked to look after. So in that, we just cannot underestimate and we cannot overestimate the value of secret faithfulness. You have no idea where it will take you and what God will do with things that you're you're working on in private. And number six, the final one, that David clearly has this personal, individual confidence and conviction that's grown in a very personal discipleship with God. But number six is, that his confidence is also rooted in the corporate identity 
of God's heart for the nation of Israel and God's heart for the whole people. That he has personal conviction and he has personal connection with God, but he also has this confidence that God is going to do something because of God's covenant and promise and commitment to the people as a whole. That David has what we could call an us mindset, an us mindset. So 17, chapter 17 and verse 47, it says, in 46 it says, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves. The battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you, in other words, all of you, Goliath, into our hands. So there's a mix here between I will go and fight. Yeah, I will go and fight. I've got a, I've got a story. I've got history. I've got courage. But there's also a confidence in that what I am doing is for us and our victory. He's going to give all of him into all of our hands. That who is this who defies the armies of God? Who is this that is mocking the people of God? And so David's passion is for the restoration and the raising up of the dignity of the whole nation. It's like Nehemiah when he hears about what had happened to Jerusalem. This is what God put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. It was for the whole. There's an individual response, but the individual response is actually for the restoration of, first of all, the glory of God and the renown of God, but also for the lifting up of the whole. So it's like Jesus, he said, I will build my church, church ecclesia, men and women who are added to his body, who have been called out and added to a body. I'm going to build that and the gates of hell will not stand my church, the advance of my church, that God is building a people, a bride, a community, a called out group of men and women. Ephesians says that the manifold, the various multicoloured wisdom of God should be made known and it's going to be known, made known by the church. So it's being made by, known by the community. So in other words, in the body and in the church, there are different ones who have different gifts and different anointings and different measures of faith and different ones at different times will stand up and say, let me at that, I want to fight. When that person goes and fights, whether it's on their own or with a group of people and they bring advancement, that advancement is always on behalf of the family and always on behalf of the whole church. So we're a body and individual confidence, gifting and individual anointing and momentum is always on behalf of the whole so as one person gets a breakthrough, as one person has a victory, as one person steps out into faith, the, the result of that, when it's an us mindset, 
is that the whole body gets more momentum and, and more speed. Because it's like a push on a train. You know, like when... You, I've never done this, but... You, well, I've not done it with a train. But you know when you're trying to help someone whose car has broken down and a few of you get behind it and you give it a few shoves and it just doesn't move? And then somebody gives it a shove and suddenly the whole car begins to move. And, he, and there's like might be three of you pushing the car and you think, whose shove was it that got the car moving? Think, no idea. We were all pushing and maybe we were pushing 20, 30 times and it suddenly moved. We don't care who, we just care it has got momentum. And that's like that with the church, that every act of service, every act of sacrifice, every act of faith, every act of risk, every act of courage, every moment where you say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to believe God, every act where we recall our testimonies and remember who we are and remember our private victories and take a risk in public, it all gives momentum to the whole. And then we don't really care whose shove it was, we just think, you know what, we're moving, we're rolling. We've got momentum. That's the kind of church we're building here. We're not building a church that is a church built around a genius and a thousand helpers or a hundred helpers or 80 helpers. We're actually building a church where it's a body, where each person interconnected and got gifts and talents and grace and momentum. I have a part, and I love how Pete Carter puts this, he says... I have a part, I just, in the body, and my part just so happens to be a little bit more public. But it's still just a part in the yes, body. It's, it's still just a part in, as it were, the <laughs> organism. It's still just a part in how this thing works. So we're not about building an idea of a ministry with a hundred helpers. We're about building the dynamic of a whole community that gets momentum from each person playing its part.